Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Claire McKenna and you're listening to Changemakers, the podcast series with people at the forefront of change. But you should never underestimate the power of a conversation to shift perspective, shape opinion and let us all become part of the change process. Today, my guest is self-development coach Andy Ramage. Throughout the podcast series, I always like to lean into self-development somewhere. I'm personally very invested in the area of health and wellness. And since my 20s, I've gone on many courses and endeavours. I genuinely love the buzz of self-reflection, the whispers of an idea that comes and then the energy to make a move. And it's actually quite similar to the traits of a change maker. So there will be so many people on this podcast who are inspiring and often we ask how do they do it and I find part of the answer is that they take the time in life to find out what it is they are truly passionate about. Andy Ramage can not only advise us on how to turn self-reflection into action as he's a performance and motivation coach and an author his life has also been an impressive journey starting out as a professional footballer, moving into the corporate world when his sporting dreams were dashed, he climbed to the top of his game as a broker before pivoting again into his current career as he wanted to find something that didn't sacrifice his mind, his body and his relationships. Andy founded the global movement One Year No Beer with his friend and colleague Rory Fairburns. And in this episode, Andy talks about middle lane drinkers, those without addiction, but who may be underestimating the effects drinking is having on their lives, or put in a different way, underestimating the joy and the time they gain when alcohol is given up. Andy has stepped away from One Year No Beer, the business, to focus his attention on a PhD around motivation and a business training people and other trainers on the psychology behind it. We talk about getting still, finding your passion, coming back from adversity and starting small. I hope you enjoy. Andy Ramage, you're very welcome to Changemakers. Yeah, this is so cool. You have made incredible change, not only in your own life, and with others but I always like to go back I know I'm going to make you feel like you're on a psychiatrist's couch yeah. but I want to know what were you like growing up were you a very motivated child yeah and only recently I was reflecting upon this myself I'm sure I would have been labeled as a child I was called hyperactive let's say I was a little ginger kid from East London and I had more energy than you know you would believe given a packet of sweets or a bottle of coca-cola I turned into a crazy child that I think was a handful, I'd say. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to swear, but my auntie described me. Um, she said, your mum loves you, but you're a little shit. That's <laughs> 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 so my aunt described me. Energy to burn. Energy to burn, football mad from, you know, 
the day dot and I just that's what I did I had my BMX and football and and that was me done literally and I I, I feel very fortunate I had a really lovely childhood uh, I have two brothers similar sort of ages so we spent a lot of time together again on our bikes playing football running out playing out as kids again in a really sort of working class part of East London called Dagenham um, but I loved it there you know I loved that upbringing I loved football was my real passion growing up it, it gave me an outlet for all that energy yeah which was really important and I let you in on a podcast secret that I listened to a podcast of yours uh, Rich Roll yeah. interviewing you and I was like I think you were going to come on the radio show when I was so I was researching for that and I was like this guy is great but I mean Jeez, he's talking a mile a minute. And then I realised, I didn't know up until then that you can hit that button. I had to sped up. <laughs> oh, but like I times like, two. I had you times two. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, this guy's really good. But he's, God, he needs to chill out a little bit. But no, when I, when I brought you back Slow to normal, it was, it was all good. Oh, good. So football became your first career. Yeah, it was my love. So at 16, I had a lovely opportunity to play rugby from my school and you know, A-levels and degrees and see where that took me or to leave and, and, and go and play professional football. So I chose professional football. It wasn't a choice in the end. It was my love. It was my passion. It was the greatest choice I ever made, even though I remember clearly starting day one of my professional life at 16 in a man's world, you know, and it was a real competition style environment, right? Because you're there as young players and you're all trying to get into the team. And I realised quite quickly I wasn't good enough. I realised out of probably the 30 professionals at the time I was probably in the bottom one or two technically so that was really enlightening for me because I knew I was going to struggle I knew I couldn't just show up and keep doing what I was doing otherwise I had no chance so I started to do something that most footballers never do read books so I actually started to read biographies I started to read self-help I really started to think differently at a very young age because I knew just showing up and repeating what I'd already done wasn't enough so I started to train a bit differently. I started to do extra training, started to do some weight training, started to eat differently, really got into psychology of my mind and sort of against all the odds rose up through the ranks and ended up playing professionally at a team called Gillingham, scoring in the professional league, which was my goal from the age. I mean, I signed with a professional club when I was 10, but I can remember from the age of five or six, I just wanted to play football and score in the professional league and I achieved it which was such a beautiful moment for me. And then I got injured. So, you know, that's the brutality of football in many ways or any of those type of sports that 19 years old, I got injured and I got an operation. I said, you've got two years left. I was right, probably 21, 22, career was over and I was finished. And it is incredible that you had started to make that mind-body connection, that it wasn't just about what you could do physically, but mentally you needed to apply yourself so that reading of books and biographies and mindset because that eventually was sort of the direction you you ended up going but it's interesting when you look back at the points in your life where it started to feature did that help you with the disappointment of knowing that that chapter of your life was over yeah and I've seen some really interesting research actually about sort of childhood adversity or, or adversity in your teens or early 20s actually can be unbelievably good for you in terms of resilience. And that was a huge moment for me because I got released prior to becoming a professional. I got released from my boyhood club. So I was there from 10 to 18 and they said, you're not good enough. It literally was like X Factor style. You queue up outside the manager's office to walk in to either get your dreams made or shattered. Mine was shattered. And I come out, all the other boys disappeared out of football. I retrialed 
found another club and then eventually got there. So that was one sort of devastating blow that I overcame. Then the injury. So by the time I was 21, 22 and I sort of packed up my football boots, I'd built a real powerful resilience, I think, in life that actually I can overcome this adversity and bounce back. But equally, I'd lost my meaning and purpose. And I think that's why so many athletes struggle, actually, at the end of their careers. I mean, the stats around athletes when they retire are horrific, from bankruptcy to divorce to depression, because I think they have their meaning and purpose ripped away from them. You know, that's guided them, for me, since the age of two or three, it guided me to that point. So that in itself was another powerful moment in my life to sort of overcome and rebuild from. So by the time I started to build momentum into my early 20s, I definitely had a resilience that a lot of other people I noticed didn't seem to have. So what did you do next? How did you assess where you wanted your life to go? Yeah, was, 21 is so young. Yeah, I mean, it was quite simple. I just went on the lash for about 10 years. That's basically what happened. You know, I met my now lovely wife, Tara, who's from Nace. We spent some time in Ireland, which I adored. And then we travelled and went to Australia and I sort of did the party lifestyle. And I think I sort of dampened it down and blotted it all out in truth. And, you know, on reflection, alcohol for me was a bit like kryptonite to my dreams and my purpose and my meaning. But don't get me wrong, through that period of my life, I had a brilliant time. You know, I met all my best friends and travelled the world and I have no regrets for any of it. But I think that was, for me, alcohol played such a big part through that period and the partying that was what my life was about it was about hedonistic fun as it were yeah you it didn't wasn't... have the training structure you didn't have to show up at weekends you were free yeah so you flipped it on its head yeah and just sort of let loose and I, I, like I said I, I had no regrets I had a brilliant time but that sort of meaning and purpose had been sort of suppressed I didn't really know where I was going I didn't have much of a life direction and that came around sort of in my late 20s I'd travelled to Australia and I came back to London. My brother happened to be a trader for a big company called BP. Um, I said, you'll be good at the broken thing. And the broken thing is the guys that stand in the pits, in the trading rings with the bright jackets on. You've probably seen them that scream and shout at one another, basically. So I thought I might give that a go and found myself in this environment that was very like sport. It was fast paced, electric, high stress, high reward. And you had to have this real resilience because there was a lot of success and failure in there. And I had that in spade loads because of my experience as a footballer. You know, those skills were so transitional to that environment that I excelled. Really, in, in 10 years, built a big business and, and, you know, achieved that traditional success, for want of a better word, monetary, you know, by that monetary yardstick, the house, the home, beautiful wife and kids, but was really unhappy, really unfulfilled. That sort of 35-year-old moment freestone heavier I hadn't trained or seen a gym in the last 10 years I'd spent too much time drinking too much not to the point that it was problematic but was I drinking too much absolutely but so so was everyone else and I always described that part of my life I was more like a middle lane drinker someone that drunk heavily someone that drunk moderately someone that drunk not at all and someone that drunk you know averagely um but I was unhappy I was five out of ten I was overweight I was stressed, unmotivated, my relationships were strained, it was just a bit like, nah. when everything had told me, if I get to that place of monetary success, I've made it right, I should be blissfully happy, I should have been moonwalking into the office and high-fiving everyone, only I wasn't. And for me, that was a massive wake-up call. So what I did, I think like most people, I thought, I know what I'll do, I'll make more money. 
and then I'll be happier, you know, and then you can feel how you get on that hedonic treadmill of chasing your tail to try and reach this place. But what really changed it for me, I, I, I paused just for long enough and had a look around at those people more successful than me. And by more successful, I only had one yardstick and that was money. So the people that were making more money than me. And I saw broken bodies, broken homes, broken minds. I just thought, what are we all doing? This makes no sense whatsoever. So I resigned. I resigned from the biggest job in the biggest seat to sort of find myself and travel the world again and try and figure this thing out. But I wasn't going to run away from that industry. I thought, could I actually take some time out, start a new business within that industry, but do it from a completely different place, a place of wellness, a place of connection, a place of health, a place of relationships, nurturing my relationships. I wasn't going to miss a netball match, a class assembly. I said to myself, that's the way I'm going to do it. And if that doesn't fit in this industry, then I don't care. Then I'll walk away, but I'm going to come back to it a changed person. And that was the sort of the transition into this whole new world in many ways. And how do you think you had that insight? Because like you said, you were operating at five out of 10 and a lot of people just accept that as being the modern world, busy working life. They don't even have to be top of the rung in banking. It can be any full-time work, adding that into family life, adding that into other family commitments and a social life. And people do just go around tired all the time. What was different, do you think, about you to say, let's stop everything was it that you were financially comfortable that you could stop for a little while I think it was more it was self-development again actually which saved me and and I mentioned about self-development when I was 16 and that transitioned my career and then I lost it through that period and it was around my mid-30s that I had this book on my bedside locker a big red book called Awaken the Giant Within by Tony Robbins I don't even know how that book got there because it wasn't the sort of book that I'd buy at that stage of my life, like self-help. I didn't need self-help. I was this like super duper broker guy, you know, earning all this money. I didn't need this sort of gigantic American dude to tell me what to do. I've still to this day got no real idea how that book ended up on my shelf, but it did. And it sat there for months and I didn't read it. And then one day out of, I think more boredom than anything, I must have picked it up and I got 10 pages in. I'm getting goosebumps even thinking about it. And my life changed. It was like, this is gold there was one line in there that said it's not events that shape our lives but our beliefs about them and that was just like a punch you know it took the wind out of me I was like wow for the first time ever I realized hold on a minute so I've got a bit of control over all of this stuff that's happening to me maybe I can actually do this internal work and I remembered and reflected upon how that transition helped me so much when I was 16 so I devoured that book and then I devoured the next book And it was that that gave me, I think, that insight again to really start to reflect on where I was in my life. And I described it as five out of ten. And I genuinely, we said this off air a second ago, I felt in my mid-30s that feeling tired all the time, lethargic all the time, and unmotivated all the time, and being overweight all the time, and not having time for myself to train or exercise or eat well, I thought that was middle age. And I was that close to accepting that as being okay, as being just the way that I was. And it was that reflection through the self-development that got me to to really analyse that and just think, no, that is not right. And then when I did that reflection around and looked at those other people and looked at their lives, I just thought, no, that is not acceptable. I don't care about the money anymore. Forget that. I'm going to go and do this differently. I'm going to see, can I rebuild my life with well-being at its core 
and see if I can rebuild that happiness and see where that takes me. And eventually it did. In terms of my career, it was the greatest thing for my career in an environment that said you can't be successful without sacrificing your mind, your body, your relationships. It's just not true. And it's really nice to hear that you didn't necessarily have an end goal. You didn't know exactly where you were going. You just knew you were going somewhere and yeah. you wanted to go on this, this journey. When did alcohol become something you really wanted to look at and remove? Well, that was part of that reflection. It was looking at all the other things in my life. And this is classic, I think, for so many people. I was meditating, trying to move my body more. I was trying to change my diet, trying to do all these well-being things around the edges. But the one thing I never considered, never questioned, was alcohol. It's like we've got this sort of cultural blind spot to it. And then it was in that reflection of, actually, I think alcohol's at the root of my inconsistency in my nutrition, my inconsistency in the way that I move my body, my inconsistency in my temperament or the way that I'm showing up in the office. It was like that sort of penny drop moment of, oh, I wonder if I remove the alcohol, will all of those things that I'm trying to implement be easier to implement because I'll be more consistent. So I started to try and remove it, which scared the life out of me because my whole career and my life to that point, it felt like was built around the social glue that is alcohol. It's how I met my lovely wife. It's how I met my best friends. I, so I was the entertainment guy, you know, in that industry. If you wanted to do business with me, you were going to meet me and we were going to go on the absolute ripper, whether that's for a lunch, a dinner, nightclubs, the whole shebang. So the thoughts of removing that scared the life out of me. And also the classic thoughts of, would I become boring? You know, overnight, would I turn into this bore that no one wanted to hang about? Would Tara run off with the milkman, would my best mates desert me? And my, uh, genuinely, my number one fear was this. If I stop drinking, how the hell am I gonna dance at weddings? That's like impossible, isn't it? So all of these fears were there, but I decided to take a break to see what happened. And I found it really difficult. My rubber arm was constantly twisted. The social pressure of being a broker in the city, of creating a, a lifestyle around alcohol was really difficult. I didn't wanna let people down, I was a people pleaser. So I kept sort of stopping and starting and I found it really difficult, not because there was any physical dependency, there wasn't, but there certainly was a psychological dependency towards it. And in that struggle, I started to get really interested in how my brain worked and why this was happening. Why was I going to these situations when I told myself I wasn't going to drink and then five seconds later, I'd end up with a pint in my hand. So I, I really deep dived into the research, which was fascinating for me. And this really kick-started this whole love of learning around psychology and positive psychology. How did my brain work? What could I do to overcome this psychological hurdle that is taking a break from alcohol? And in that space, I eventually got to 28 days alcohol-free, which doesn't sound like a lot, but for me it was huge. That was the first time I could four remember. four weekends. It is four weekends. And the truth is most people start drinking in their teens and they never stop never really get a break from it. So this was a proper break. And I woke up, it was a Saturday morning, sun was shining and I felt amazing. I'd slept like I hadn't slept in years. I was excited about waking up rather than, you know, curled up in a ball under the sheets, dreading the day to start because I was so sort of jaded or tired or hungover. You know, it was like one of those lovely moments and Tara was on top form, the kids were on top form. And I just remember thinking, I want more of this. This is, this is how I'm supposed to feel. See that middle age thing that I thought I felt like? That's not the truth, this is the truth. I've got energy again, my eyes were bright again. This is really cool. And right about that time, funnily enough, the social pressure was intense. My mentor, my hero, my boss, 
said to me, if you continue not drinking, your career's over. So that's huge social pressure to hear. But luckily for me, that came just after this almost revelatory Saturday morning that I thought, no, I don't care what you say. I'm going to keep going because I think there's more to this. And that was really the springboard into a longer journey, alcohol-free, which, which genuinely transformed my life. So when did Rory come into it and it becoming one year no beer and spawned a community and a book and all of that side of things? When did it become more than just your personal experience? Well, this was the sort of exciting part. I left that old company to start my new company, as I just described, and it was going really well. And I wasn't drinking, which was freaking everyone out in the industry because they were like, hold on, that's not supposed to happen. Because I was consistent, I was on my A-game all the time, growing this business that was flourishing, and Rui was left at the old firm. But in Broken, if you leave a firm, you're dead to them. You know, it's like that sort of environment. So Rui and I would have to meet in secret. <laughs> and I'd be just sharing these general tips and things that were happening in my life. And he'd seen the transition. At this stage, I'd lost three stone in weight. I looked completely different. My eyes were bright again. You know, I was really fit and healthy, smiling again and happy. And Rui could see this change in me and was like, that looks bloody great. I'll have a bit of that. So Rui was then inspired to take a break. He then got the same results, felt amazing. His business was booming. So there was two of us in this industry that had said, you can't not drink, being really successful in different companies. And as part of that, I was like, I think I want to share this with someone. I don't know. I've had this beautiful experience at this stage. I feel great. I've got more energy. My relationships are better. My business is booming. How do I share this? So I had an idea for a little ebook, and Rui knew all about the interweb and all that sort of stuff, because I had no idea. So he encouraged me to sort of write this down as a, it was about a 10,000 word PDF, effectively. He put up a website. I had this rhyme in my head, this one, you know, beer, because I'd used that as a bit of an excuse to buy me some time in the early days, just to say, I'm doing a challenge. Just leave me alone for five minutes. Let me do this challenge. And don't worry, you'll get me back. But secretly, I knew I wasn't coming back. Secretly, I knew I'd unlocked something so powerful that I'd never drink a green, because why would I? Um, so we put this little book out thinking a couple of brokers might read it and within the space of about three weeks it had gone all over the world and people from China, Brazil were starting to send us emails to say I've read this little ebook and the concept which is this was that there's nothing to give up and everything to gain. It was a real celebration of all the advantages and the benefits of being alcohol free such as more time, more energy, more clarity, more consistency. It was really resonating with people. And we were sort of like, oh, well, maybe this is a thing that we could create a movement or help more people with. So that's what we did. We turned it into a movement called One You Know Beer, which was so exciting. We run it for two years. We gave it all away for free because it was just a, an aside to our jobs and it was altruistic for us. And then we got two years in and went, actually, this free stuff's costed us a fortune. Mm. We both invested hundreds of thousands of pounds into this. We were like, we can't sustain this. But bearing in mind, we'd helped thousands of people at this stage already so we were like well we can't just switch this off what are we going to do and in that sort of struggle we almost begin to turn the lights off we were like look we can't sustain this anymore we were both burnt out as well from it it was a hundred percent of our free time on top of really busy jobs obviously we'd invested lots of money in it and in that moment we were going to turn the lights off I had an idea I was like well actually I wonder would someone pay for the learning and support and the community that we've created so I basically flicked a switch on the software that we were using, which allowed us to see would someone purchase a course, for example. And then we turned the lights off for two weeks. We went away and said, we've got to get a break. And we came back to, I guess, 
what was a little miracle, we'd sold five of these courses. And it was like, oh, maybe there's something in this. If we can actually get people to invest in all the learning, the psychology and all the support, then maybe we can actually use that to hire some people so we don't have to do everything. You know, we can use that to, to reach more people. And that really sort of was the springboard into the whole movement that's reached hundreds of thousands of people. That's a big business now. Um, that's a global movement, which is so called and something I'm, I'm forever proud of the movement and the people and the emails and the messaging. When you help, help someone like that, it's, it's the greatest gift on earth, I think. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And it's amazing as well because I think, especially with health and wellness or anything like that, there's almost a fear in us that we don't want to say to people, you should do this. I feel amazing because you just feel afraid of delving into people's lives and saying what you're doing is wrong. And yet you felt so excited by it. You just felt you had to share it and you could have stopped and said, oh, no, look, that's just for me and Rory. And look, we've done great, but that's for us. But the fact that you took that step and the momentum and the difference that it made to so many people, it's a good thing that you didn't let that, you know, negative talk of leave other people alone stop you. Yeah. And, you know, I will look back and say it was quite courageous in many ways because I thought we'd be vilified by our, our industry. I thought genuinely. And that industry was really important to me. It's what looked after me and my, my family. So I thought if we went sort of public with this thing and started saying, I'm not drinking and I feel amazing. Why don't you come and join us on a challenge? And bearing in mind, this was eight years ago. And people didn't quite understand where it was aimed, which is at middle lane drinkers. And I described that earlier. So it was real prevention. This is not about addiction. It wasn't about problematic drinking. But eight years ago, people didn't understand that. They thought you either have a problem or you don't. So why would you ever stop drinking if you didn't have a problem? They couldn't quite understand it. So it was quite difficult for us in the early days. We'd have to constantly re-pitch it to people and explain to them, no, 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 this is not addiction thing. This is not a stigmatised thing. This is a prevention thing. It's a fun challenge. It's, it's aimed at those people that sit in the middle, which made it really difficult. So when we first came out, as it were, to start, there was a lot of hurdles to jump through. People didn't quite get what we were about or what it was all about. And it did take a lot of courage to do that. And I'm so glad that we found the, the courage. And I'll be forever grateful to Ruri actually, because he had a different level of confidence that I didn't have. And he was great at going, come on, let's just do this. And I think you need someone in your life at times like that to give you that extra push to go, yeah, I'm going to do it. And there were moments, genuinely, I would post a blog 
I'd do a podcast and I'd literally sort of hide behind my screen and cringe at the thought of, oh no, the industry, people I know and love, my mates are going to read this and what are they going to think of me? And then you breathe through it and then all of a sudden the messages will start coming in, the positive messages. And I'd be like, wow, this is amazing. I just want more of this. This is a beautiful thing that we're doing. And then you grow a confidence that no one can stop you then. I was like, I know this is helping people. I don't care what anyone says. And the truth is, the industry were amazing. They did nothing but support us. My friends did nothing but support me. Of course, there's the odd bit of slagging and, you know, you're going to get that. But all those fears that I had about, you know, coming out and being very public about it were totally unfounded. And I think that was a really beautiful thing as well. And what's at the essence of it? Because I think there will still be people listening, thinking you either have a problem or you don't. And why would you stop? But it's the drinking that kills momentum and consistency, isn't it, for you evolving or achieving goals that you want to achieve? Yeah, so that middle lane drinker is basically, I've just described, probably 75% of the population. So they're not in that problematic space, but it's probably getting in the way of their life a little bit, even if they don't realise. You know, research is there around alcohol and sleep. It affects your sleep. And then look at the research around what poor sleep does to your motivation and productivity and mental health. It might be the thing that's breaking up your consistency in the way that you exercise. I mean, if you do the reflection for most people will find the number one thing that stops their consistency in going to the gym or moving their body is a late night or a hangover and suddenly they, they sack it off because they're tired or jaded and then they lose their rhythm. Same with nutrition. What's the one thing that gets in the way of your healthy eating, that stodge food the day after or the late night takeaway? We've all been there. So when you compound that over your life, I think it has a huge negative impact on people's overall well-being and their performance their vibrancy and their happiness. So my messaging really um, is all about people taking a break. So it's not a forever thing. Just take a break, like a 28-day break, and see what that feels like. If you've got more energy, more time, more consistency, you feel a bit better, your eyes are bright again, you're more consistent in the way that you eat your body, maybe you lose some weight or optimise your physique and feel better about yourself. Isn't that a wonderful experiment to run? I think just run the experiment, test it versus where you are now, and where you are then and if there's any benefits that's a really beautiful thing to have found out yeah it's really it's really clever and mm. i think it's really interesting because i think anybody who's been on a big night out or drinks at the weekend it can be wednesday before you're starting to feel like yourself again so then you've wednesday thursday are good days and then it's friday again so you're only giving yourself two good days whereas if you've got seven good days it's incredible what you can achieve and i think you are a testament to that because it's brought you on such a journey. So that gave you the impetus then to start to walk away from the, the life you were living. When did the psychology and, and studying into that a little bit more come about? Yeah, one of the things you'll notice if you do take a break from alcohol, is you get loads of time back. You know, I always thought I had no time. I had no time to exercise, no time to eat well, no time to study, no time for me. Life was work, stress, family, repeat. I removed alcohol, and this is just my story, but I got loads of time back. I think less time physically in the pub, but also more time in the morning. So instead of fighting with that alarm at 7am, I started to wake up before the alarm because clearly I was sleeping better, I was moving more, I was eating better. All those sort of health symbols were starting to rise. And then I got up a bit earlier. Then I read a book called The Morning Miracle by a guy called Hal Elrod, you may have read yourself. And I thought, what a simple idea. 
get up at 6 a.m. or 5 a.m. and get two hours before the world's awake. And because I had the energy and the vibrancy and the health now to do so, I started to get up at 5 a.m. every day before work. And in that space, I ended up writing two books. I did a degree, a master's degree in positive psychology and coaching psychology, started the, you know, the one you know beer movement all before the world was awake. I mean, that for me was such a revelation. It still is. So I still get up at 5 a.m. I still like that to our window that didn't exist in my life before alcohol. I mean, for that, for me, was just it was just revelation. So that basically gave me the time and the impetus and the energy to really get into the study. So I've just applied for a PhD now, which might start in January. And the mission with that PhD is to put science around all the subjective benefits that I've just spoken about around alcohol. So wouldn't it be lovely to be able to say, I know scientifically, if you take a 28 day break from alcohol as a middle lane drinker, your motivation will go up by 10%. Your relationships will improve by 5%. These things are difficult to put tangible scales on, but wouldn't it be nice if we could actually create that to be able to go to your GP, for example, and say, look, if someone walks into your surgery and says their relationship is struggling, take a break from alcohol. If they say, I'm tired, take a break from alcohol. If they're feeling a bit low, take a break from alcohol. They want more energy, take a break from alcohol. I think it should be something that's almost up front and center alongside mindfulness and nutrition and exercise. That's the sort of mission in life for me right now. Oh, it's so interesting. And like, not everybody has to go on your particular journey, but I think you just show that if you're willing to make change and you start small, you've no idea where it can lead you. And I think that's at the essence as well of a lot of, the work you do now around motivation with your book, Let's Do This, which I've read. I've done your office athlete course. Yeah. And I learned so much about the psychology and the science behind motivation. We have to start small, don't we? When we look at a big colossal goal, it becomes a really negative things in our life as, a po- as opposed to making it a positive thing. Yeah. So, for example, around alcohol, if you said never again, that's too much. That's way too much for most people. And even a year's in truth, is too much for most people. Start small, whether it's a week and just see how you feel, or 28 days and see how you feel. And you never know, like you described, where you might end up. And bearing in mind, I've seen hundreds of thousands of people come through now whose lives have been fundamentally transformed by that one habitual change, which is to take a break from alcohol. And I would say 90% of them had no intention of going past 28 days. It was like, let's just do 28 days. I'll just test it, but then I'm going to go back. But then they'll do that 28 days. And like I described, get some of those benefits to start to come through. And maybe they feel a bit better, or a bit more brightness. And it's like, oh, maybe I'll go a bit longer. And suddenly 28 days becomes 60 days, becomes 90 days. And I genuinely think somewhere in the 90 day type break from alcohol, we call it the alcohol free magic, because during that period, you would have had a stressful moment. You would have been bored. You would have been lonely. You know, you'd have had a traumatic moment, more than likely. You'd have had all those big social occasions. And I think if you can get through those whilst not drinking, then all of a sudden you grow this new, beautiful, found confidence that, oh, actually, my life's getting better. I'm more optimised. I feel happier. I've got more momentum. And I've just dealt with all of these big things in my life that traditionally I would have turned to alcohol for. And I feel great on the back of it. And I think when people tend to get to those bigger numbers, then they end up going on a much longer alcohol-free journey like me. So, you know, what eight years ago I did a 28-day challenge and here I am eight years later. And you really evolved from helping people with one year no beer. That has now become 
your job. You train people in motivation. You've now started to train coaches so that they can coach in whatever their chosen topic is. So did you feel that start to happen, that idea of, of wanting to help people and wanting to give back? Yeah, I mean, the first message or email I ever got when we started the whole One You Know Beer movement, that was it for me. That was one of the most beautiful moments in my life. When you think that you've said something or wrote something or done something that helps an individual you've never met in your life and they send you a message, I'm sure you've had this through the radio show, and they send you a message to say, you fundamentally helped me and my family. That was just for me. Not that I cried in that moment, but I wasn't far off it. I was just like, that's amazing. So for me... That's my life, that's my meaning, that's my purpose. So I stepped down from One You Know Beer after being with them for many years and left Rui to run that organisation. And I'll always be a part of the movement, but no longer a part of the business because I wanted to approach well-being and going alcohol-free from all different uh, angles because it's such a huge issue that I see in people's lives. Again, not in the problematic area, in that middle lane area. So I wanted to approach it from all sorts of different ang angles. I started the self-development programmes that I run because what I found is... A lot of people, they take a break from alcohol, but that's just the start. That really is the excuse to get into the room with someone like myself and like-minded people. And then it's really about self-development because that was, that was the thing. You heard me talk about it twice in my life that saved me when I was a footballer and then when I was in my mid-30s. That development of thyself, understanding how your brain works, getting you know op optimally fit and healthy and all those type of things is so incredibly important. So that's what I do now. I run courses in self-development really for people that have already taken a break from alcohol but I'm also about to start a new community a new movement which is going to be a people-powered movement to inspire a million people to take a proactive break from alcohol as middle lane drinkers which I'm so excited about but then that's led me to training coaches because I looked at it and thought right what's the way that I can magnify this goodness in the world and I actually thought well actually if I train people to effectively do something similar to what I do or give them those skills they can go into their niches or their communities or their jobs and they can then help other people to improve their lives and then net net as a collective we really move the needle in a big way so that's a huge part of what I'm doing now and, and I absolutely love it. Now I know you have a, a degree in this topic but how do you stay motivated how do you continue to evolve how do you keep moving the goalposts as it were and not being overwhelmed by that sometimes people will listen and say well you know he's successful he's great why doesn't he just stop where he is right now yeah I think it's the meaning and purpose that drives everything I feel really really lucky I must admit I had that as a footballer it was given to me from age two and then it was taken away and then I stumbled into it in the most random places by taking a break from alcohol I never knew that was going to lead me down this developmental route and that really is a deep desire deep meaning and purpose for me and I think that drives everything and when you've got that goal in your life and I know it's really hard for people to connect with that because I think a lot of people are looking for meaning and purpose I didn't look for it I stumbled upon it and you know I will say to anyone listening I think that's why goals self-development getting outside your comfort zone community all these things are so important because you never quite know where you're going to connect with something that might lead you towards more meaning and purpose in your life I didn't know I can never have predicted you know how my life's taken shape so with that engine behind me, I'm really driven to help people and help myself in truth as well, because I love it. It feeds my soul. It makes me happy. I get to do things like this, travel around beautiful Ireland and connect with people. I mean, how lucky am I that I get to do this and it generates the economics that allows me to do it. I just feel incredibly blessed. So for me, 
it's a never ending quest and I won't stop, I won't slow down because like, why would I? I've got no intention of ever sort of just getting to a point and then switching it all off. For me, this is a, I'll run this till the day I check out. And maybe at not as fast a pace, but I will run it until the day that I check out. Um, so that feeds me of motivation. But that being said, of course, like any, anyone, you know, I struggle with that at times. I remember clearly writing my book, the second book, Let's Do This, which is all on motivation, which you've read. And I remember making the joke halfway through whilst writing it. And I remember saying to myself, do you know what I need? I need a really good book on motivation to get me through writing my book on motivation because I was struggling, you know, halfway through. So I think like anyone, you know, it ebbs and flows. You've just got to, you know, you've got to treat yourself with compassion and kindness and know that some days you're going to be really up for it and other days less so. And then treat yourself kindly in the days when maybe you don't show up and you're not super duper and you don't do your run and you eat like shite and all those type of things because then... I think that gives you the space to not run away from it and sweep it under the carpet. You can see it for what it is. And then the next day you're back on it again. And I think it's nice for people to hear that obviously you're a goal planner and a goal setter, but you've just let it evolve and you've just let the journey happen and you've got to one point and it's led you somewhere else. And that's a really positive thing. You do have finally some very important pillars to your health. And one of them I think is really interesting and it's to, to have stillness to take time and that's where we get to reflect and we get to look at our our week our life our loves our dislikes and that's where we learn how do you do that because i think people have got so confused with mindfulness and, and, and meditation and being still how does that feature in your day yeah so i'm a big advocate of mindfulness i think it's it's a wonderful tool and a wonderful skill but equally like you say it's sort of become this magnet for anything that involves relaxation or spending quiet time when actually there's many ways to achieve the same thing so just going for a walk in nature reading a book like i did some great work with a company called first beat where they wire you up to um, a real elite end heart rate monitor and you wear it during the week and at weekends and you sleep with it so it tracks everything and basically it gives you a bit of a stress score let's say so red being stressed green being relaxation and I run this when I was broken. I wasn't drinking, I was, you know, fit and healthy. And my score during the day was all red and I'd get brilliant green at night. And again, because I don't think that I was drinking, I'd get great relaxation at night, which was saving me effectively. But then I did it again and I tried to incorporate mindfulness and all these different techniques to see could that get me into the green effectively during the day as an opportunity to recover. And what I found, reading for me was better than mindfulness which was a really nice revelation because I love to read anyway. And I think quiet time and replenishing is not all about mindfulness. Even though that is a beautiful skill, there's many ways to achieve it. There's active recovery as well. I love going to the gym and lifting weights. I find that quite therapeutic. Because it's just being in the moment, isn't it? So yeah. we're not lamenting on the past and we're not frenzying, worried about the future. We're just doing what we're doing. So whether it's reading the book, whether it's working out, whether it's going for the walk. That's just it. And often that's where the little ideas come to you. Yeah. And I think the essence of mindfulness is just being in the present moment. And really all mindfulness does is a skill that allows you to come to the present moment, whether you focus on your breath or a mantra. Really, all it's doing is training you into the present moment. So if you've got a skill that you love that gets you in flow, for example, which is like being in the zone, and that could be a hobby, that could be painting, it could be writing, it could be being with loved ones. That effectively is mindfulness. It's the exact same thing. It's just bringing you into the present moment. 
So when I understood the two, I understood how mindfulness work and had a mindfulness practice. I then realized how that transitioned into other areas of my life, for example, strength training. Like when I'm in that, I'm in the zone of strength training. So even though I'm physically moving my body, exerting my body, I'm totally present. I'm switched on. I'm not worrying about the past or agonizing over the future. I'm in the moment. So when you can start to see and feel those things, you realize there's a lot more to rest and recovery and quiet time than the sort of obvious out the box mindfulness. And I think that's really important to get across to people because sometimes people don't make that connection and go, oh, I'm so stressed, I, I don't have a chance to relax. Maybe just go for a walk or maybe go and lift some weights or maybe read a book or listen to some music. There's lots of other ways to achieve the same result. Yeah, so interesting. And it goes back to that quote from Tony Robbins that you said, you know, it's not the situations around us, but it's, it's us in those situations. And we do have the power to make change and yeah. to, to control these things and, and alter these things. Well, I'm excited to see where you evolve from yeah. here. It's been fascinating as always talking to you. Andy Ramage, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.